0: Welcome to Please Print This. This is episode two.
1: This is Christina Honkanen, producer.
0: And I'm Matt Honkanen, producer and audio engineer.
1: Today we're talking to Chase Cook, who works with the Sustainable Forestry Initiative at the University of Georgia in Athens.
0: You're going to hear the Sustainable Forestry Initiative referred to a lot as SFI. Chase is focused on the implementation of sustainable practices across the state.
1: We thought he would be the perfect person to start to explain to us what certification actually means.
2: Athens, Georgia is my home. I work at the University of Georgia in the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources. I'm on the outreach staff side. 100% of my time is dedicated to the Georgia Sustainable Forestry Initiative Implementation Committee. I wear a Forestry University hat. But my audience operates in the, in the theater of Georgia. The SFI Implementation Committee undertakes landowner outreach, public outreach, and most importantly, logger education. My day-to-day activities are focused on those three things under the banner of the Sustainable Forestry Initiative.
1: Tell us a little bit about that certification program.
2: The quick dog and pony about forest certification is just that. It's a label that conveys some information in the marketplace. Most of the demand for certification takes place now, today. At the wholesale level, if you want to think about it that way, because you're, you're probably when you go into a store to buy cereal, you pick the cereal you want, not the packaging that the cereal is in, but the place that you're choosing to do business with has some uh, responsible procurement policies. And so maybe you're choosing to do business with a place that worries about their supply chain, environmental assets and resources and what thought goes into that. So that's kind of the driver in, in domestic certification today is is what's going on with the, the large lumber retailers or uh, manufacturers of various goods and services and folks that are buying and selling stuff in the, in the consumer goods spaces. It's, it's kind of happened at that one step removed from the shopping aisle part. In terms of the scope of what's going on here in Georgia, the SFI implementation committee is made up of uh, our current roster is 34 companies. About one third of that are landowners. Ranging anywhere from 10,000 acres up to many hundreds of thousands of acres. And about two thirds of the, the companies are on the mill side. There are anywhere from smaller mills that are in, you know, for example, maybe the veneer product business that you may or may not have heard of up to the uh, very large pulp and paper companies like international paper and in Georgia Pacific and, and lots of sawmills like Interfor and, and Canfor and so forth. And that's how forest certification works.
3: What kind of products are produced by forestry?
2: It's a great question. And I'll answer that generally, not specific to Georgia, because it's a pretty long list. You've got products from the forest that come to us in our everyday life. And they're probably really easy to think about. Everybody, top of your head, oh, it's lumber and it's toilet paper, because toilet paper has been exciting over the last two months. So yeah, definitely, definitely in there. That's, That's something most people think about without knowing much about forestry. I guess stepping one step behind that, pulp. When people say pulp and paper, a lot of people don't really understand what pulp breaks down to. And so, yeah, that's how you can make toilet paper. It's also the material that is used to make something like diapers. So if you've got kids, then diapers are a choice you had to make. Were you going to do cloth or disposable? And if you decided disposable, that is a, a very big forestry product. Another thing that's become critical to a lot of people here in the last two months, boxes we all kind of refer to the Amazon boxes showing up on porches all over the place. But, uh, you know, kind of thinking a little more carefully about that, the medicines that are going to and fro in boxes, that's how we package a lot of stuff. So yeah, pulp and paper boxes. But looking past that, cellulose and chemicals are probably a pretty big part of it. Once you get past things like lumber and paper and pulp and, and pellets, the industry in general has gotten pretty good about squeezing any kind of product that can be made out of all the stuff that goes into making other solid wood products into other viable markets. And so when I'm talking about cellulose and chemicals, that that ranges from crayons to the fibers in helmets, the cellulose that goes into smartphone screens, to soaps, to rayon fabrics, to cellophane, to chewing gum, to explosives, a lot of pharmaceutical products are using derivatives from the the pulp and paper process, the chemical side of it, and they're mainline drugs like cancer drugs, hypertension drugs, malaria treatments. And so those are all items that are coming from forest products that the general public probably doesn't think about. And then the last category that I'd be remiss as a a forester if I didn't mention, um, probably the most important products we take for granted, and, and that's the clean air and the clean water side of life. In Georgia, about two thirds of our landscape are covered in trees, which means about two thirds of all the water that we get on an annual basis coming out of the sky is passing through a forested watershed. And so, as a, a biofilter mechanism, it's a pretty important thing. Same story for clean air and and climate mitigation and so forth. Forests are our lungs and kidneys for our planet. It's a pretty important thing that we don't necessarily monetize and we don't think about day to day, but It's a really important part of the equation.
0: It's funny to me how easy it is to sort of brush over the environmental piece of this puzzle. You know, he named all of those products that come from sustainable forestry, but arguably the most important piece of this is clean air and clean water, which is something you would not get if that land was developed, and turned into a parking lot, or turned into housing, or turned into a convenience store.
1: I really think it was helpful that he said, when he said, two-thirds of our water in the state is filtered through a forested watershed. For me, that was a reminder that this topic is not in addition to something that makes our life better or different or easier or more efficient like most of the products are in this world. It's That's not what this is. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that is absolutely essential to life. I think that's really important and it distinguishes, for me, the conversations we're having and what we're trying to discover, and better understand.
3: Chase, where do you think the disconnect is with consumers?
2: That one's an interesting question. It's kind of difficult to really boil it down so if you'll permit me a little more long-winded explanation i guess there's a philosophical side to it and then there's a nuts and bolts side to it for me personally so on the philosophical side it kind of starts with if you're disconnected from where something comes from you know uh, farm and forestry is is something if you're in the business you think the general public just doesn't get it because you know they just didn't grow up around it or whatever uh but you know if if that is, is the case, I think part of the struggle when you're practicing forestry and trying to explain that we're not bad people and we're not out to pillage the earth, the fundamental philosophical disconnect is one of romanticism and ignorance about how things come to us, how, how they come to be in our space. And so two really important concepts that uh, I just really made me set up straight in my chair back in forestry school days. One idea is that Mother Nature—we think of her as all about harmony and balance, and things aren't disturbed. And and I had this wonderful professor who put it in very blunt terms for us. He's like, in reality, Mother Nature is a bitch, and um, and, you know, not to be crass about it, but what he was getting at was nature abhors a vacuum. It doesn't just exist in some steady state where nothing changes as long as you don't monkey with it. There is constant fire and weather and one species trying to overtake another in the landscape and so it's not some quiet harmonious calm lake out there nature is really dynamic and then the second thing that really made me set up straight was the idea of biological carrying capacity and so on a real simple way to think about it if you took an acre of ground and you planted hay and then you took another acre of ground and planted trees and then you let everything run its course, harvesting hay on an annual basis and then letting the trees grow for 20 years. If you weighed everything that you cut off of each of those at the end of your your time span, all the hay you harvested over time and all the trees you harvested over time and everything else is exactly the same, you'd have the same amount of biomass on both of those. And so that was a concept that I, I hadn't really understood or thought about before. So taking together that it's a really dynamic thing that nature is and it's a really competitive and everything's fighting for survival in this sphere, I kind of put two and two together where the light bulb went off for me in that we are subject to the biological carrying capacity, just like plants are. We humans are part of the landscape. And so sustainability, really what I think the general society doesn't really stop to appreciate, given our modern lifestyles and, and how we operate, are that our choices, what we choose to buy and what we choose to consume and eat and, and all these other things have ramifications for our landscape. And so what we're trying to do in forestry is bring to the people what the people are demanding in the most sound, uh, be it economically and environmentally, sound way that we know how. It's, it's not about cutting down the trees and then moving on to the next place. It's about making it all work indefinitely. And so that idea that disconnect is, you know, fundamentally, it, it it's conservation is about looking at ourselves in the mirror for what we do beyond what we can see. It's about kind of looking back and, and thinking about how all these things are interrelated. So that's, that's kind of the philosophical disconnect I see is that we we as a society don't really necessarily appreciate our choices lead to the natural resource decisions that are made out there. It's not just like people are harvesting to get rich. It's part of our system of making society function. When I'm doing public outreach, a very misunderstood thing that's always a, a good place to start conversations would be that land ownership patterns and corporate investment or incentives determine the sustainability of a forest. And so forest to somebody that's not in forestry, you know, might seem like that only applies to the, the national parks you've been to that are unbelievable, right? But forest can be part of an urban forest canopy in your backyard connected with your neighbor's trees. It can be a working forest, which is a term we like to use in, in forestry. And, and that is forests that are grown for multiple objectives, not just for park purpose. And and then it can scale up to the landscape level. So it could be my 100 acres with your 100 acres and your 100 acres and, and so forth. So there are a lot of ways to think about a forest. But one thing, you know, specific to Georgia, but this applies writ large. Who owns the land isn't the government or some mysterious entity. It's in Georgia. It's hundreds of thousands of people on the land. So more than 85% of the land in Georgia is owned by private individuals or companies. More than 50% of the land in Georgia is owned by family forest landowners, not corporations, not companies. So all of these people, these hundreds of thousands of people that are responsible for deciding what they're going to do with their land, have choices to make. They all love forestry for the purposes of wildlife and scenic vistas and and recreational opportunities and nature for nature's sake. But they also have property tax bills that are due every single year. And so unless you've just got really deep pockets for other reasons, you got to figure out how you're going to pay for that property over time. So if you inherit it and you don't have any, any income coming from the property at all, it's going to be a, a pretty hard thing to justify hanging on to this You know, really big expense if you don't have some way to recoup some of it. So I think that's a big disconnect, you know, outside when you're not intimately familiar with forestry that you just don't understand. if there aren't incentives for a landowner to manage property for forestry purposes, it can turn into things like farms, which are okay. Maybe not as biodiverse as a forestry application, but, you know, okay. Or it gets converted to other things like development, neighborhoods, shopping centers and whatnot. And the, and the danger when you convert that way is that they don't come back to forests. You can convert ag properties and most recreational properties can revert back on their own just fine. But once you pave it, it's done forever. So it's a, it's a, pretty, big, it's a pretty big deal and it's a pretty big disconnect in the general public uh, to really drive home the point that if you've got a viable forest industry here, Some companies have made investments assuming that there's going to be forests to provide them with the raw materials to turn it into products down the road indefinitely. They don't want to set up a mill for 10 years. They want to set it up forever as long as it makes sense to operate the mill, which in turn gives the landowners a place to, on a sustainable basis, grow their wood and then over a period of, of time, cut their wood, be paid for their wood, and then use some of that money to replant the property. So that's That's a sustainable picture that encourages people to have land in forests. To spin it the other way, if you don't have a forest products industry, people are going to have to do what they're going to have to do with their property. And it's not the public's decision on what I'm going to do with my land. My decision, because I'm the one paying the bill.
1: This is where it starts to become abundantly clear to me that we're talking about a topic that we don't fully understand, that it's dangerous to be living in a world in which life moves forward at as fast a pace as it is moving. Developments go up in what seems like overnight, and we're constantly pushed to expand, grow, make more money, make more developments, build more buildings. And we don't know enough about the repercussions for that.
0: Yeah, what you're saying is reminding me of episode one when we were talking with Howard. And Howard mentioned that humans are not very good at understanding environmental risk. And I think that's exactly what he's touching on here. We make decisions without understanding, and those decisions can be really hurtful in the future. do you find a significant struggle in the, in the state of Georgia to, to educate these people that own this land how to do it sustainably and that they really should be digging a little more deeply into the responsibility that they have as an owner?
2: Okay, so the challenge of knowing the hearts of hundreds of thousands of people is impossible, right? So it, it comes down to what are the incentives for people to do the right thing? There are lots of forest landowners and I'm, I'm suspecting that the person that you, you spoke with the large landowners that I've had the privilege of meeting, they all want to do the right thing. It, it's kind of getting down into the weeds of ignorance. The people that came across it from inheritance or they came across it because they just thought the idea of owning land was a good idea or whatnot, got in over their heads with, you know, kind of what happened next or, or whatnot. There's no way for me to tell you how many people are in which camp doing, doing the right thing because it, it's coming from their hearts how do we encourage or how, how do we kind of make sure that we're going in the right direction, given that we've got almost seemingly randomness into who owns the land or what information they're working with and who's involved. It kind of goes back to what are the incentives in play from start to finish. So most landowners have good intentions, but if it's going to be really expensive to do the right thing, then, you know, that's, that's when it starts getting complicated. So if there are incentives in the marketplace to, keep everybody on the same page in terms of what we should be doing, but also having some accountability there, that's a pretty important thing. And so I I mentioned in the beginning, we've got forest management certification, we've got fiber sourcing certification. So just on the basis of forest management certification, there are three main certifications in the state of Georgia. Uh, We've got 26 million acres total of forest land, 24 million acres are accessible for a variety of purposes including timber management and 22 million acres are privately held commercially available working timberland and so that's your denominator of the three certifications that we have here in georgia 2.3 million acres are under sfi 1.4 million acres roughly are under tree farm certification and less than 100,000 acres are under the third option for stewardship council uh, FSC certification so if you, you do the math you've got a relatively small percentage of the total forest land is certified to any one of those three standards now the important part this is where fiber sourcing certification comes in remember that's mills being audited to standards of where are you buying your wood from who are you doing business with our BMPs being followed best management practices being followed so the the way to think about fiber sourcing since they don't own land is to think about of this is just back of the envelope calculations that are available, of all the the wood that's harvested on an annual basis, upwards of 70% almost are going to SFI certified mills. So while a relatively smaller percentage of forest land is certified to any one standard, a very large percentage of the wood harvested annually is going to an SFI certified mill. That's important because of what is baked into the SFI fiber sourcing certification standard and so there are three components I want to briefly describe. One is logger education, two is landowner outreach, and three is accountability and we refer to it as the inconsistent practices policies. And so, logger education is important because all the SFI certified mills require their supplier base, their wood suppliers, the loggers cutting down the wood bringing it into the mills to participate in the logger education program. So their choice is you can either participate in this education program or you can't haul us wood. That's a pretty strong incentive. So it doesn't take much arm twisting to get the loggers on board with the training and education program. So upwards of 90% of all the suppliers in the Georgia area doing business with SFI certified mills are active in our logger education program. And that is where we make sure all the loggers are on the same page when it comes to Forestry best management practices, which are centered first and foremost on water quality protection, rare, threatened, and endangered species, invasive species that are of concern to forest productivity, OSHA, labor and safety laws, some business management principles, kind of the professional image of what we do, and harvest planning and and forest products trucking safety. So there are some important things that we want everybody to know across the board. So now we know that everybody's on the same page in terms of, these are the expectations in law. These are the expectations and best practices. And oh, by the way, because of uh, the SFI certification requirements, you are gonna be looked after in different ways. It's the same story on the landowner outreach side, except we don't have a way to strongly encourage all landowners to participate in our, our outreach programs. And so uh, we divide that up. Our state agency partners, DNR, the, the Department of Natural Resources, the Georgia Forestry Commission, the Georgia Forestry Association, Natural Resource Conservation Service, these are all supporting organizations on our committee. We all work together in different ways to reach landowners. So we try to complement the activities that are going on at the state agencies and consulting forester groups and, and that sort of thing by the program that we have here in Georgia is to reach out to new landowners that show up on tax rolls. And these new landowners, we send them a, a, a mailer saying, hey, congratulations. We understand you recently purchased some forest property here in Georgia. No charge to you. We have an outreach program. We'd love to send you some information that cover all the forestry practices and principles that we cover in our logger education program, but it's formatted for a new landowner. So we talk to you like a landowner instead so of have a logger, but it's the same fundamental principles. Did you know there are best management practices? Do you have a reforestation plan if you're planning to harvest? Are you aware of these state agencies that are available pro bono to get in touch with you? Are you aware of professional registered consulting foresters that are are there to assist you all along the way? That's our outreach program. We've been running that program for over 15 years. We've got about 10,000 people on our mailing list. So it's not the majority of landowners, but it's our effort to reach the people that didn't know that there were people like us out there trying to steer them over to the state agencies and consulting foresters and so forth. And so that's our landowner outreach side. Let's get the harvesting supply side all on the same page. Let's get as many landowners as possible in the loop on what it's going to do. Now let's talk about the accountability piece for just a a brief moment. So it's great if you know who's involved with the whole supply chain. You know who owns the land, you know who the logger is, and you know who's buying the wood. And with that information, if it's an SFI certified mill, which are the biggest players in Georgia, if you call them up and tell them that I don't think this logging job was done in the right way, I don't, it was too close to the creek, there's trash everywhere on the site, there were drags of wood that were left that nobody's using, you know, any of the things that are inconsistent with the the forestry practices and principles that are defined chapter and verse in SFI standards. If you see something that doesn't work, you get in touch with who's involved on the SFI side. And then there's a timeline that everybody has to follow. This is when the complaint was received and within our specified timeline, we're going to find out who was involved. We're going to audit it. And if there are corrections to be made, we're going to make sure those corrections happen. We mirror that what's going on with each individual company. If you're not comfortable contacting the company directly or you just flat out don't know anything about forestry, we work closely with our Georgia Forestry Commission. We have a hotline and an email address where people get in touch with me. They can get in touch with the Georgia Forestry Commission, but we launch our own situational analysis, and it's got a prescribed timeline. We'll respond to every each and every single complaint we receive and get to the bottom of it, and we're either going to satisfactorily resolve it, or once the SFI companies have identified who was on the harvesting side of it, the loggers or and or foresters that were involved with the operation that violates any of the best practices, they have the choice of either fixing it or their wood contracts are stopped immediately. So that's a pretty strong incentive, right? So it's a, it's a good system that, that works well in Georgia and, and the general public, it, the reason it's it's not a, a one-on-one conversation for me and in, in most outreach circles is that getting your mind around land ownership and getting your mind around how quickly and dynamically uh, an entire landscape can change with or without man-made influences is complicated enough and then to you know start talking about why it's it's not rule of law that keeps this thing going but it's it's certification and it's people all working together on uh diligent and coordinated efforts that that's the success story in georgia
1: i wonder just back to this whole idea like we started here because of a simple question which was is it an issue that most people likely think it's a bad idea to cut down trees Let me
2: just ask you that. I think the average person sitting in their living room doesn't think about it. I think the average person riding down a highway or an interstate or a a county road and looking at a harvest operation, if they don't know anything about what comes next and what the 20-year plan is, you know, yeah, I think uh, in general, there's, there's no way, myself included, to look at a clear cut and say, man, that looks great. And so I think that is the general perception that said, in my outreach experiences, I've never run into anybody that wasn't interested to learn more and walk away with kind of a different perspective on things once we've had a chance to talk about how it does work and what you're looking at in the context of what comes next over the five year, the ten year, the twenty, and the fifty year period so i'm I'm encouraged you know I, I don't think all hope is lost and you know everybody will never be able to come to terms with it but also think that you can't take for granted that the social license to operate is under threat by people that are maybe not telling the whole story for the sake of fundraising for their advocacy cause and so that's that's always going to be a problem but you know we do the best we can to do a good job and then try to carve out enough time to talk to anybody that wants to talk to us about it and i think that's the best we can do
1: The customer side I'm clearly hearing him say I don't think that's a battle worth battling you know <laughs> where I, I mean my instinct is to like disagree with that although I've been an environmentalist in my lifetime I would say and come to the same conclusion that moving the needle of public awareness and infiltrating the consumers world in a way where they're once again asked to do something that's really high maintenance like go into your grocery store and look Mm. for products that are packaged using sustainably harvested pulp or, you know, that is not realistic. And so I get that on face value. And then of course, there's like a little part of me that's like, but (laughs) where do we go from here? You know,
3: well, and to your point there, like you have to really care to take it to that level. Like, and is it become more of a, the industry needs to move the needle to make it important to the consumer because the consumer's not gonna take it into their own hands, which is like a whole nother thing. Yeah. Did you ever think about what you should be looking for? Certification symbols on a cereal box? Like that would never have occurred to me. To think about that. I think about that when I buy personal care products, but I didn't even consider it when I was thinking about boxes that the, you know, granola bars we buy are in, you know, like that doesn't, and I think that's interesting in and of its own. Like, how do you educate the consumer to, to even start thinking that direction and pushing the needle that way?
0: Please Print This was developed by HL Strategy in partnership with Pitchwire. Today's episode was put together by producer Amy Adams, producer Christina Honkinen, and producer and editor Matt Honkinen.